In the last episode, we discussed the increased contact between the people and the crown. Now, this episode is about another change that England was experiencing at around the same time, and it was just as profound, if not more so. But in order to understand it fully, you need to understand what's happening at the same time of that development. So basically the hundreds and the wapentakes. So if you skip the last episode, go back and make sure you catch it before you move on to this one. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 298, Uptown Churl. No, nope. No, I thought it was kind of funny. All right. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. Also, make sure to check out the site this week and take a look at the BHP's newest mascot, King Penda, the last of the Anglo-Saxon pagan kings. He's now featured on the site. And huge thanks to artist Lee Moyer for bringing this character to life for all of us. Also, thank you very much to Graham, Elwin, and Patsy for signing up for membership. You members are the only thing that makes all of this possible. Long ago, there was a settlement that had been occupied and farmed by the British and the Anglo-Saxons for centuries. In fact, by the time the Scandinavians arrived on the island, this village, known as Wareham Percy, was already well-established and it had been inhabited continually for centuries. Furthermore, it held strong for centuries more, even though it was located perilously close to the Scandinavian stronghold of Jorvik. In fact, this little village could well have been part of the very same lands that were shared out by Halfdan himself. Wareham Percy survived it all. And throughout all the struggles for control, this ancient settlement had signs of continuous occupation through to the time of Alfred and beyond. But by around the mid-10th century, a new settlement appeared in that area. It was close to Wareham Percy, but not exactly in the same place. And that's curious, because this new settlement wasn't an expansion of the existing community, nor was it a rebuilding of dilapidated structures. Instead, it was a planned settlement, almost like how modern developers plan and build subdivisions. And as soon as we see these structures appear we see life shifting immediately to the new settlement and leaving the old structures behind. Nearby, in the area of West Heslerton, there was a settlement which had housed people since at least the time of the Roman occupation. The community it held was sizable, and it remained large even after the withdrawal of Rome. And then, in the late 9th century, around the time of King Alfred's reign, the settlement moved. And just like the situation at Wareham Percy, The settlement didn't move out of the region, nor did it completely disperse. The people largely stayed in the vicinity, but the concentration of the most active buildings shifted, and now the pace of life was centered on a new nearby location. And then in the 10th century, which is where we're at right now, the settlement moved again. And this time, the location stuck. And actually, the modern village of West Hesslerton is located on that same site. Now, these two villages aren't the only examples of this. It started small, but by the 9th century, settlements everywhere started to move. But at the same time, they still stayed within walking distance of the old settlements. So why were they doing it? And why were they doing it now? 
Well, for those of you with an encyclopedic knowledge of British geography, you might be musing that this could have been due to the Dane Law. After all, both of the settlements I described were located in Yorkshire, so maybe attacks by raiders were forcing them to rebuild elsewhere, or maybe the new Scandinavian leadership wanted a new site so they could start over fresh. And that might be a plausible answer, were it not for one simple fact. These changes in settlement weren't just happening in the Dane Law. They were happening all over the Anglo-Saxon territories. And some of the movement happened before the first Drakkar ever landed on British shores. So instead, something else must have been happening. And it's actually something that dramatically altered the relationship that people had with each other, with the nobility, and even with the land that they were tending. You see, the development that was taking place among the Anglo-Saxons, the revolution in perspective and governance that was giving birth to England, wasn't only transforming the relationship between the crown and the people. It was also accelerating the transformations that were already taking place at home and in the fields. But to see how this came about, we need to zoom out. Because on a day-to-day -day basis, life for many of the Anglo-Saxon farmers probably seemed relatively the same. The changes that we're going to be talking about came on slowly, even more slowly than the political changes that we talked about last week. So let's turn the clock back a little. For large portions of Anglo-Saxon history, the relationship between the people and the land had been largely one built around subsistence farming. The king owned most of everything, or sometimes literally everything, but you worked the land, and you paid your food rent for the right to work that land. And in exchange, you were able to keep the rest of what you produced, you know, after you paid your food rent. And in those early days, whatever you gave your lord was likely to be consumed by him, or his retinue, or his household, or whoever he decided to hand it out to. And that's because there wasn't much of a trade economy back then. On occasion, there might be a trader that landed in a place like Ipswich, and then if your lord had some extra food, he might be able to offload it. But for the most part, the food rent that was gathered was used by the lord's household. Except, of course, for the portion that he had to pass up the chain. And these lords in those early days held enormous sections of land. Just ridiculously large territories. And as a result of that, there was a tremendous amount of potential wealth that could be funneled to a single household. But that wealth was in the form of food. And food eventually spoils. Because of that, there was no real incentive to create a food surplus. Without a way to trade food for something that wouldn't rot, like coins, creating a surplus would just mean that you were creating work for no real benefit. Consequently, there was sort of a check in place that kept food rents low. There simply wasn't a reason to jack them up. So in those early days, the people who were working the land were dealing with and were being taxed by impossibly powerful nobles. I mean, the scale of wealth and power they could draw upon was insane. But at the same time, these nobles were also largely absentees. The farmers rarely interacted with them, if ever. And the lords, for their part, didn't have much of an incentive to take on a hands-on approach on how the farms were being run. Because really, they could only consume so much. So long as the rent came in, there was no point in fussing over getting more. But then things started to change. And to get a better understanding of how this situation was changing, let's return to our hypothetical churl back in Apperley. For generations, the churls of Apperley had been working largely for themselves. When they plowed the fields, it was their fields they were plowing. 
When they planted, they were planting with the intent that they would be harvesting that field later on. And when they did harvest, they reaped most of the benefits. Now granted, they paid a portion of their harvest as food rent to their overlord, likely the Elderman of Gloucester. But it was a small portion, because their overlord was drawing from a very large number of estates and could only reasonably consume so much food. What this meant was that the churls of Apperley, for literally hundreds of years, were essentially self-employed farmers. They made what they needed and not much more, and that meant that they had an incredible work-life balance. I mean, many times when we imagine farmers in the Middle Ages, we think of brutally long hours in the fields every day. But the fact was that the churls of Apperley had a ton of time off, and they could spend that time doing, well, whatever they wanted. The first signs of change, though, likely began when trading towns like Ipswich began to be established. With the rise of markets, suddenly lords had something they could do with all that extra mutton they'd been getting from their food rent. So rather than having excess food rent that would just fall to waste, the lord would be able to trade it for currency. That changed the relationship between the churls of Apperley and their overlord. Now, if the elderman of Gloucester wanted something expensive, say he wanted a fancy new manor, well, suddenly he had the option to just jack the rates of rent up on his churls. In doing that, they would bring in extra food, and then he could take that food and trade it for cash. And voila, suddenly he can buy those Frankish tapestries he's wanted. The appearance of markets and of money changed the entire incentive structure. And as a result, lords began to take more of an interest in how their lands were being taxed. This got worse by the time of Offa. Thanks to the social and cultural pressures that were introduced by the practice of bookland, many large landowners, mostly bishops and eldermen, began to break up their mega estates. The massive tracts that we've been talking about were split up into portions of maybe only five or ten hides each, and these would then be handed out to the most favored members of a particular noble or clergyman's retinue, and generally the recipients of these would have been part of the middle-class nobles, the thanes. And oftentimes, upon becoming a new landlord, these thanes also acquired a new duty to provide food rent, you know, among other duties, to the eldermen that they served. But despite the burden of those new obligations, obtaining a new plot of land was a thrilling moment for the thanes. And actually, many thanes were so excited about it that they even renamed their towns after themselves. For example, there was a thane named Alfred who acquired the rights to some lands and a corresponding settlement located to the west of Gloucester, and he named it after himself. He called it Alfredstown, and actually we still call it Alfredstown today, only a little bit garbled. Alveston. And it's here where you might be wondering if that's how Apperley got its name, but it wasn't. See, the Charles of Apperley had long cultivated a grove of apple trees. And apples were such an important part of Apperley that the area was actually named after it. It was the lay, meaning the grove or wood, of apples. Apperley. And that name stuck, even after the area came under the management of a new local thane. But, simply because the thane governing Apperley didn't change the name, doesn't mean that he wouldn't have taken an interest in how the region was operating. In fact... While the churls and other farmers of Apperley were picking apples and weeding the orchard, life among the nobility had been changing substantially, and for many of the nobles, life had been getting much more difficult. 
The issue that was driving this is something that we've spoken about in previous episodes. Wealth concentration had created a circumstance where only the very highest of the noble classes could actually do better than their parents. And that meant that virtually everyone else was experiencing downward mobility. And not just for the working class. For pretty much most of the nobles, everyone was moving down. Just about everyone was doing worse, generation upon generation. And this wasn't just a problem of the wealthy and powerful taking bigger and bigger slices of the pie, though that certainly was happening. It was also the fact that opportunities for exploitation had changed. In previous generations, if a noble wanted to expand his wealth and outrun this wealth concentration problem, he would just go and expand into new lands. But opportunities for expansion had pretty much dried up by now. The borders had largely been cemented, and even the farmers of Apperley were probably starting to feel this stagnation. Because in generations past, if an ambitious farmer wanted to improve his lot, he might have gone and expanded his fields into an untended area. But these days, pretty much all the arable land was already being used by someone. And again, this wasn't something that was just happening in Apperley. It was happening all over the Anglo-Saxon territories. And so, as these new thanes came in, they were looking for ways to generate the wealth that they needed so that they could live like lords. And where does a lord go when he wants wealth? Well, you might be thinking of the burrs. After all, the burrs were producing an enormous amount of wealth. However, we're talking about thanes here. Basically, the middle management of the nobility. What do you think the chances are that a thane could get a piece of the action of the Burr of Gloucester? Not very good, right? Those burrs were under the control of even more powerful landowners, people like the Eldermen and the bishops. You might also be thinking that producing currency would be a good way to generate wealth. After all, when you have a mint, you get to keep a cut of the metal that you use to make the coins. Well, while mints were increasingly common, those too were under the control of only the most powerful members of society. And if anything, the burrs and the mints were actually part of the thing that was driving the wealth concentration that was making the social ladder so hard to climb. So turning to them wasn't going to help. They were locked out. Similarly, war wouldn't really work. It was too risky, for one. But for the most part, it also largely only benefited the most powerful nobles who were involved in it. The fact was that once extreme wealth concentration got rolling, the incentives at play ensured that those at the top would constantly seek bigger and bigger shares of what was available, because to do anything else would mean that they would get shoved down the social and economic ladder. So massive wealth generators like burrs, mints, and wars were controlled by only the most powerful members of society. And good luck getting them to loosen their grip because the future of their dynasties depended not just on holding on to what they had, but on finding new ways to get more money before the rivals did. And that pressure meant that even thanes, a class of people who once would have been riding around with the king as his personal retinue, were now scrambling to find ways to simply maintain their status. Furthermore, now that the lands were getting subdivided into territories ruled by thanes, who then were ruled by eldermen, this meant that land ownership, and even the title of Thane, was becoming an increasingly crowded field. Essentially, Thanes were in a position where they couldn't ever reasonably get rich and powerful enough to become an elderman. And actually, due to the structure of their society, if they wanted to simply maintain their status, 
they would need to find new ways to exploit what they already had. And to make matters worse, their eldermen were incentivized to find ways to exploit the Thanes. So they better work quick. And if you think this looks a bit like a death spiral and like a bad way to organize a society, you might be onto something. But these Thanes still wanted to live like lords. So where could they turn to in order to gain the wealth necessary to meet their ambitions? Well, most Thanes turned to the real source of wealth in Britain, the farms. But the farms were already, you know, farming. So if the Thanes wanted to expand their wealth, they would need to find a way to extract more produce from their lands, which then they could acquire through food rent, which they can then sell at market for currency. And then they could use that currency to buy a trendy new belt, which they would use to keep up with the other lords. And one of the early methods that they used to draw more wealth from their lands was to expand their fields into areas that were being used as grazing lands. Now, these areas typically were things like floodplains or in areas where the land had a lot of clay, which made it hard to till, that sort of thing. An example of what was going on here is at Yarnton. Looking at the archaeological record, historians have determined that the farming community at that site dramatically expanded their operations right at about the point that this social pressure started to fully kick into gear. So at around the time of Alfred's grandfather, King Egbert. And judging on the organization and construction involved, it's likely that this was all being done at the direction of a local lord seeking to expand his wealth. So probably exactly what we're talking about here. So Yarnton was close to the Thames floodplain, and based upon the insects that were found in archaeological digs, it's been determined that they were using that floodplain as grazing land for their horses and cattle. Yarnton was also close to other fields that couldn't be cultivated, fields that had soil that was heavy in clay, and that made it too dense to be broken up through the traditional plow that was used in the Middle Ages. As a result of this, for centuries, Yarnton only farmed in certain select fields. But then everything changed. The clay fields, which hadn't been cultivated since the days of Rome, were suddenly being planted. And that was made possible by the fact that the farmers began to use a heavy plow. Now, heavy plows are, well, they're really heavy. They actually need as many as eight oxen pulling them, along with a full team of workers. But that's pretty much the only way that a clay-rich soil could be overturned and made ready for planting. And suddenly... That's what we see taking place, which means that we have a shift in technology, but it also means that the number of work animals that were present at Yarnton had to have increased. And on the one hand, that's actually really good news. More work animals meant that there was more manure for fertilization. It also meant that the amount of land that could be plowed increased, and it also allowed for greatly expanded fields. But it also came with a couple of challenges. First, Using the heavy plow required a ton of oxen, and oxen are expensive, which is why most farmers only had one or two, if any. But to solve that problem, it looks like the villagers banded together and decided to share the plow burden, all contributing whatever oxen they had on hand and then working together. However, there was another challenge. As those fields expanded, they expanded into grazing lands, which meant that the available grazing land obviously reduced. Now it's a problem because the work animals used to eat in the floodplains and also in the areas with that clay-rich soil. And now that those lands were cultivated, they couldn't eat there. But the work animals still did need to eat. 
and there was a lot of them these days. And in response to this pressure, many farmers began to cultivate hay. See, a hay meadow produces substantially more fodder for livestock than simply allowing open grazing on a floodplain. And so, like many communities, the people of Yarnton planted a hay meadow. They placed theirs in the nearby Thames floodplain. The trouble, though, was, like I mentioned before, the livestock had been using that floodplain to graze. And if you wanted to turn that area into a hay meadow, you needed to carefully fence it off. Otherwise, the animals would just go back to their old grazing lands and eat all your seedlings. But more importantly, everyone would also need to find a new way to keep the animals fed from February to June, because that's the period when the hay would be growing. So doing all of this, and setting up the hay meadow, and bringing in all the extra oxen, and using the heavy plow, all of this would have had to have been carefully planned out. And it would have taken a lot of work and foresight. But the result of all this work was that the landscape would be completely remade. And that is reflected in what we see at Yarnton. Cattle production increased, which meant that there would be more manure for fertilizing and animals for plowing, which in turn meant that there would be more fields that could be cultivated. And as a welcome side effect, these animals could also be used to transport produce to market. And as a result, we see an increase in grain production, including the construction of a granary to house all that grain. And all of this meant that the wealth generated at Yarnton increased. And this type of thing was happening all over. In fact, when we look at the new smaller estates that were being granted to Thanes, it's clear that the plots were laid out so as to allow them to be efficiently farmed. Things were being organized specifically with an eye on wealth extraction. And fair play, the reorganization instituted by these nobles certainly did make the farmlands much more profitable but here's where it gets ugly. These new thanes were working to develop themselves into country gentlemen, which is something that many of us associate with England, but in this period, it was a relatively new class that was coming into being. And to make this change, these thanes were seizing ever greater portions of the labor that was done by their workers. Farmers who had been used to a mostly isolated and self-sufficient life and who had been working mostly for themselves and would just occasionally send a portion of their harvest to a disinterested noble as food rent, were now finding themselves being aggressively managed by a local thane who was absolutely scrambling to extract any wealth the land produced in order to maintain a station. Because all these thanes wanted to live as lords. And living like a lord isn't cheap. They needed more goods to sell at market which means that the productivity of the farms needed to be increased. And as a result, the workload being placed upon the farmers was also increasing. And at the same time, even though those farmers were working more and were producing more than had ever been done before on their farms, what they were allowed to take home to feed their families wasn't increasing. In some cases, it was actually decreasing, because much of what they were producing in the fields was intended now for a different purpose. It would be taken to market, and it would be sold for the benefit of their local thane. And this focus on creating surpluses for the purpose of sale became common among the nobility. And soon other nobles got in on the game. Lords sought new ways to exploit their lands and thereby keep up with their peers. They would monopolize markets, and even the clergy was getting into this. For example, at around this time, the monks of Glastonbury carefully reorganized their estates and laid out a new planned farming system to better capitalize on the farming economy of the region. Now, 
it appears that this was something that was accomplished over generations. And that makes sense. If the nobility came in and demanded that all of the mostly independent farmers immediately hand over their fields and start working in the Thane's land full time, well, but it didn't happen that way. Instead, bit by bit, their obligations changed. Slowly, they were working more. They were producing more. And they were getting less. And make no mistake about it, these changes were ensuring that the balance was shifting away from the needs of the farmers and towards the expansion of the local thane's wealth. And remember that spiral I mentioned? That was still there. So even though the thanes were extracting more labor from their underlings than had ever been done before, that didn't lessen the incentive to extract even more wealth. It actually expanded it. Year upon year, there was a greater need for growth in order to keep up with their peers. Year upon year. And so we start to see Thanes employing creative means to expand their wealth. For example, tax evasion. We have a surviving story of a Thane in Devonshire. His name was Hekka. And he realized that pasture lands had low tax rates. And while pasture lands weren't that prestigious, for Hekka, prestige wasn't everything. So rather than focusing on fancy estates, he got quite wealthy by acquiring and expanding pasture lands, and then probably using those lands to raise sheep, which would produce wool that he could sell at market. And he did all of this while keeping his tax burden really, really low. But most Thanes didn't go that route. Instead, they turned to the same place that they had always turned to when they wanted more money. They turned to their farmers. And this is how we get to those villages that I mentioned at the start of the episode. The ones that kept relocating. For pretty much as long as there were Anglo-Saxons, farmers have been living mostly in isolated farmsteads or in hamlets, and they tended to their own fields and generally just kind of did their own thing, only paying food rent when it was called upon. And honestly, it sounds like a rather nice way to live. But if you're a noble looking to squeeze every last shilling out of your lands, this arrangement isn't very efficient. And the solution the nobles came up with was to create villages. They began to plot out new communities, sort of like modern developers designing a subdivision. And the plan was to get all of their subjects to move into this new area. And this might seem like an expensive public works project for no purpose. After all, laying out a new village would be a huge pain in the butt. But the fact was that it paid dividends to the local lord. First, by having everyone in a single location, the region would be much more easily governed. The Thanes Reeve didn't need to ride for miles from hamlet to hamlet just to make sure everyone was working. Instead, the Reeve could just ride down the road from the estate and then look into the village and see if anyone was at home when they shouldn't be at home. Also, remember those heavy plows that needed a lot of oxen? And how some villages were working together as a community and pooling their oxen and also their labor so that way they could actually do heavy plowing? Well, if everyone lived in a village rather than scattered all over the place in hamlets and farmsteads, that would minimize the travel time necessary to come together and do that heavy plowing. And thereby, it would maximize plow time. Similarly, the hay meadows we've been talking about needed to be cut really quickly because of how delicate it is at harvest time. There's a narrow window of only a couple days before mature hay goes bad. And that means that cultivating hay requires a lot of hands at harvest time. So living close together and working cooperatively would have made hay cultivation not only easier, 
but honestly, probably just a lot more feasible. You get a lot more people working on the same field. Furthermore, there was a new land scheme that appeared at around the same time that these villages were developed, and it was immensely beneficial to the local lords. You see, these fields, which had been previously held by individual landholders, were now being transformed into common fields. The way these things worked is rather than having your own field, you'd have strips of a whole bunch of different fields that were held in common. So you'd have a strip of a hay meadow, and a strip of a wheat field, and a strip of a pea, I don't know, field? I don't know what you call a land plot of peas, but you'd get a strip of that too. You get the idea. And by doing this, it would allow for better organization and planning for crop production. And it also presented a solution to the issue of crop rotation. See, every now and then, a field needs to be left fallow. Otherwise, the soil gets stripped of nutrients, and then you can't grow anything on it. So what they would do to avoid that is that they leave one field alone each year and just let the livestock graze there. That would keep the livestock mostly fed, and it would also fertilize the fields as a welcome side effect. It's not a bad plan, but if you've only got one field, imagine how hard that year is going to be for you and your family. Well, these common fields offered a solution to that because it ensured that farmers would always have some produce every year. It also made working jointly on harvesting, plowing, and all the other necessary tasks of farming a lot easier because everybody could work together. And that made farms much more profitable, which expanded the opportunities for wealth extraction for the nobility. And it also separated the farmers from their land. Whereas their ancestors had cultivated the same fields for generations, and those fields were basically theirs, even though they had to pay food rent for them. Now there were common fields that they were allowed to work on. Well, not the whole field. They were allowed to work on a few strips of them. And those were fields that their wealthy local lords could easily exercise control over and even seize. So through the construction of these villages, the farmers would be able to be organized and managed much more aggressively. And that would allow the local lords to better exploit not only the labor of their subjects, but also it would make it easier to literally take control of their land. And so, we see villages being set up all over the place. For example, Shapwick and Somerset went through a reorganization like this. They had 16 plots of land of unequal size that were set up between two roads, and this was done for the intent of establishing a village. And you might be wondering why unequal plots. Well, while the lords really wanted their subjects to live in villages, not everyone was enthusiastic about this new plan. I know, it's strange. It's almost like they didn't like the idea of giving up their lands, moving to a new area, and spending their days not out in a pastoral environment, but instead in a comparatively crowded street being watched by their lord's henchmen. It's weird they weren't excited about that. Especially when they found out that it wouldn't just be the churls who were moving in. Unferth, his friends, his family, and even the slaves were all being asked to move to the village. So for high-status farmers, the knowledge that they'd have to live practically next door to a low-status farmer was probably a hard sell. And when we look at the plots of lands within these villages, we see evidence of some degree of resistance to relocation. And some Thane's village plots remained unused for generations. So, in an effort to push this new plan, we have evidence of local lords trying all kinds of things to entice people to leave their scattered farmsteads and move to the new villages. 
One of the schemes was to offer unequal plots of land. That way, the high-status farmers could still look down their noses at Unferth and his paltry little plot down the street. Because here's the funny thing about humans, and not just humans, actually primates in general. We can be fairly happy living in a pit of mud, provided that it's the nicest pit in town. We're social and status-based creatures, and that coding goes deep. But not everybody was enticed just by a bigger plot of land. So lords also played upon the practical needs of their more recalcitrant subjects, and they built things that would make village life much more valuable for them. For example, we see lords building mills, and that would have been quite attractive to a farmer looking to process grain, since the alternative was having slaves or farm women grind it, which was a slow, back-breaking, labor-intensive process. They also did things like building churches or other religious buildings, again, trying to attract the farmers to relocate to be close in. There's also a focus on communal activity, which was centered on the village. For example, after harvesting corn, you might go to a celebratory harvest feast. Same thing after all the plowing was done. And the whole plan here was to push this idea that village life was a proper life. And this was so effective that by the 10th century, which is where we're at right now, low-ranking farmers were no longer living on farmsteads and working in their own fields. Now, they were crowded into little alleys on their thane's personal village, and they were expected to spend most of their time working in their thane's fields for his personal benefit. And only rarely could they work in their own meager little strips of farmland. The control here was so overwhelming that we're told in Aelfric's colloquy of how low-status farmers would work in the freezing cold, even as they grew hoarse from the chill, all because their lord demanded that they plow one field every day, and they feared what he would do if they didn't meet his demands. These thanes were changing the relationship between the people and the land. No longer were people working in the fields mostly for their own benefit and giving just a portion of that produce to their overlords. Now, the lords were extracting enormous amounts of labor from them for the sole purpose of wealth generation, and only rarely could these farmers work in their own fields for their own subsistence. In this way, even though there was a tremendous amount of downward social pressure due to wealth concentration, these medieval middlemen were still able to live like lords but they were only able to do it by dramatically decreasing the quality of life for virtually all of the population of England. Over the generations, the farmers who were enticed to live in these villages with the promise of feasts and access to mills and other amenities soon found that their quality of life was decreasing. They were working longer hours for less and less, all while their productivity increased. Furthermore, their status decreased. Whereas a churl had some degree of standing, the downward social pressure and the crowding of all of these thanes into society meant that it wasn't long before the work expected of a churl, and actually the way a churl was viewed, wouldn't be all that different from poor Unferth, and he was a lowly geber. Meanwhile, the spiral of competitive wealth concentration that was driving this situation still remained in place. The structure of society hadn't changed. So the incentives that were driving this behavior continued, and the nobles continued to seek more and more methods to extract wealth from their lands and their subjects. And this perspective is made clear in many of the lives of saints that were written. For example, offering feasts in exchange for hard work was a cultural norm, but it wasn't a legally mandated one. 
And in the life of St. Kenelm, we're told of a lord who balked at the idea of allowing workers to take a break from work to celebrate the Feast of Kenelm. He said, quote, just because of Kenelm, I don't know why we should lose a day's profit, end quote. It sounds downright Dickensian, but it's in the Middle Ages. And it wasn't like these lords were hard at work in the fields right alongside their farmers. In the life of St. Wolfstan, we're told of how a thane spent his days playing games, drinking, and amusing himself, while the peasants sweated in the field for his personal benefit. And in the face of all of this, eventually, the farming class of the Middle Ages, the foundational element of these kingdoms, and the economic engine that drove the development of small warring chiefdoms into mighty nation-states that could challenge the power of the continent, were reduced to nothing more than peasants and they were treated as such by their overlords. Lords who probably couldn't harvest a sheaf of hay if their lives depended on it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all our communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.